Hello, and welcome to the Marketing Show podcast. This episode is brought to you by our partner, Canva. Canva lets you design anything and publish anywhere. Yeah, we use Canva to create all of our designs, even the podcast artwork you might be looking at right now. On today's episode, we're talking about the four P's of marketing. You've probably heard of them before, but we're going to break down what they are and what they actually mean for your business. We hope you enjoy the episode. And if you do, don't forget to hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and review while you're there. Enjoy the episode. Okay, Mark, so we're talking about the four P's, the, the big four, um, <laughs> as they were. Uh, before we get stuck into it, do you actually know what the four P's are? Look, uh, I, I take a wild guess here. It's probably price, pyramids, pivot, promotions, and maybe one of them could have been pasta. <laughs> okay, I, it sounds like you're, um, you're, you're talking about maybe some internal, <laughs> it sounds like you're talking about some internal initialisms there. but. But the four P's of marketing are a strategic framework that can help marketers plan what they're going to sell and how they're going to bring that to market in an effective way. So your four P's are your product, your price, place, and promotion. Yeah, totally. They're the absolute building block of everything we do as marketers. And it's something you learn when you first start studying marketing, maybe in high school, um, or if you're a university student at university. Um, and they are, they are basics for a very, very good reason, which is something we're going to deep dive into today. Totally. So look, to kick us off with a really formalized definition, here's one that I found, which is the four P's are a set of marketing tools that firms use to pursue its marketing objectives within the target market. Now, when we're talking about the audience or the target market, it's important to note as well that when you look uh, at the four P's, you'll know you'll notice that there are actually lots of different versions of the four P's out there. There's four P's, six P's, seven P's, even eight P's I saw online. Um, but Often when you go beyond four P's, you start to include people or target market uh, within the P's. So the, the idea of coming up with plans for your target market becomes irrelevant if you're extending out to say six P's. Um, but to back that up, I've got a really nice quote to set us off on why the four P's are really important for all marketers to know. Uh, so the quote is, the building is only as tall as the foundation is strong enough to build upon. I don't have an attribution for that, but I think it's a really good one to start us off um, to say that it might seem really basic that we're talking about the four P's. I'm sure everybody already knows what the four P's are, but unless we truly understand them well, we can never do really great things that are much more sophisticated than the four P's. Totally. And, and also, I feel like a lot of this advice is going to be applicable to building IKEA furniture. <laughs> very true. Very true. All right. We've got some, some data and stats here, Mark. Why don't you kick us off? So uh, the first mention of the marketing mix, um, where the four P's actually kind of started from as a concept, is actually attributed to Professor James Culliton from the Harvard University in 1948, who actually said in an article that marketers were the mixers of ingredients, which is a really, really, really cool philosophy to see that happened so long ago. Yeah, that's right. So the marketing mix was like the basis of what, then became the four P's. And the four P's was first published as a framework in the 1960s by Jerome McCarthy. Uh, and while people were aware of that mix concept from the 40s, Jerome was the first person to put it together as the P's and make a framework out of it. And since then, McCarthy's four P's have been widely adopted by marketing academics and practitioners alike. In the 1980s, the four P's framework was extended to a seven P's framework, specifically for marketers who worked in the services sector 
And now that included people, processes, and physical evidence. But whenever we go past the four Ps, it's really important to note that sometimes the additional Ps that come into play can sometimes vary. Yeah, I've definitely seen, you know, when you work for different companies that they have their own set of six Ps or seven Ps. So it's good to take those with a grain of salt, um, but the four are always the same. Totally. And that's why we're focusing on the basics today, which are those core four. And speaking of which, let's dive into them. Yeah, Mark, let's, let's jump right in. Why don't you start off with product? Totally. So product is often considered the most important part of the marketing mix. And without a product that fulfills the needs of a consumer, you don't really have anything to actually be selling or promoting. So the reason that's really important is that whether you're selling uh, something like toilet paper or you're developing a new tech platform, uh, identifying your product and making sure it's something that works functionally well to solve consumer problems is really, really important. Um, And it's really important to start testing and learning with that solution to solve your consumer problem. Uh, to make sure you find a good product market fit before you start going on to the other Ps. Um, And a really good place to start with that is to actually talk to the consumers about your products. Uh, See what consumers who have tried your product or adjacent products and talk to them to understand what they like or dislike about that product. So you can better tweak that later on. Another good place to think about products when it comes to the four Ps is to check your consumer complaints. And this is a really good place to start to understand how you keep maintaining and improving your product as you go along. Another key thing to take into mind when it comes to this P is to actually analyze different consumer trends, habits, and attitudes to understand whether there are opportunities to tweak this product to suit the needs of your changing consumer needs. And you might start working on a product Uh, in year one and the way the market or the problem might develop for your consumers might change in year five. So it's really, really important to maintain this pillar um, and to keep testing and learning as you go along. Now, the other key key important thing to note when it comes to product P is the really basic product life cycle. And the product life cycle revolves around the first phase, which is introduction, which is when you first launch the product. The second phase that usually follows after that is growth. So your, your people are starting to use your product or service and that's starting to accelerate amongst your user base. Then you start to have maturity um, where growth can start to flatten out. And this is quite typical of really large scale brands which have been in the market for a really long time. And after that, you can have post-maturity where you can either go into growth again or you start to enter decline. So naturally, if you can stay on top of a good routine to maintain your product as you're going along with consumer trends, you can make sure you're going back into the growth stage. That being said, if you are entering the decline phase and you've identified that for your product, you can start to think about how you can reinvent this product to stay relevant. So for example, in electronics and tech hardware, it's really crucial to stay up to date with the latest technology in new products available, as well as the different advances in software to make sure that you're staying on top of that innovation. And that brings us to our final and pivotal point of the product pillar, and that's innovation. Um, And that's staying on top of how you can either extend your product or service into different need states, um, or how you can actually pivot your core product going forward. And it's really important to see consumers excited with your product going forward. And this is kind of different based on different categories. And, you know, you might be in a category where people just want a really functional solution and there's not going to be really big drastic changes in innovation. There might be small tweaks here and there, but sometimes you might actually identify that you're in a market that really, really needs and is hungry for innovation. And that might be a category like confectionery, where it's always important to have something new that drives that impulse purchase. 
So if you look at chocolate bars, for example, you'll see that they have different flavors and different maybe formats of bars coming out each season. And that's to keep people really engaged and to really drive that impulse purchase because you see a really cool and exciting new delicious chocolate. Yeah, I think what I'm taking out of this, Mark, is that product is never finished. It's not like a painting that you finish and then put on the wall. Uh, you, you know, you're always working on your product and updating it to keep it relevant. Totally. And that's one of the reasons why we always need to stay on top of product as a pillar and always come back to it because it is so important and will inform the rest of the decisions going forward. Fantastic. All right. Let's talk about price, our next P. So your pricing will somewhat define the segment of the market that you'll play within whether it's budget, mainstream or premium. So how do you work out what your price should be for, for your product once you've worked out what your product should be? Well, I found this really cool matrix called the distinctiveness versus centrality matrix. And this came from the Harvard Business Review. Uh, and what this is, is if you think about centrality, uh, another word for it would be, I guess, mainstream um, and distinct distinctiveness about how different your product is um, and you plot those on an x and y axis so you put centrality across the bottom and distinctiveness uh, on your y axis you can then start to build quadrants and plot brands within your category into the quadrants so the four quadrants would be if you're in the bottom left corner you'd be not central and not distinctive and that means we're what you'd call a peripheral brand which is you don't really have a lot of sales because you're not central or mainstream and you're not that different to everyone else. So you're a little bit on the fringe and you start to question what, why would someone buy your product or service? And you might need to think about um, innovating at that point, but let's talk about cars to give you an example. That might be something like a Kia or a, or a Sangyong or something like that. Now, if we move over to the right, so the bottom right corner, you're central or mainstream, but you're not very distinctive. So we call those mainstream brands and going back to cars, let's think about Nissan or Honda or something you see a lot of all the time, but they're not that different. Now, if we go back to the left and up to the top left-hand corner, you're again, not very mainstream or central, but you are distinctive. And we call those unconventional brands. So think about your Teslas or your Fiats. Uh, and then if we move, shift it over to the right again, you're central and you're distinctive and that makes you an aspirational brand so let's think about a bmw or mercedes-benz you see a lot of them and they're uh, distinctive the reason i bring up this matrix is that where you are on that graph will help you work out what price you should be playing at so if you're in the top half you could probably be a little bit more expensive because you're distinctive and people are really thinking about that purchase a little bit more. But if you're in the bottom half, you're going to be a little bit cheaper, especially if you're in that bottom left-hand box, which is there's no real reason for anyone to buy you but being cheap uh, in that case. So once you've done that, you've plotted where you sit against your competitive set, you can start to understand where you are and what your pricing should be. But that, that's not the only thing you should consider when it comes to pricing. There are a few other things you could look at. The first thing is go back to your business case. Uh, how, how much can you afford to sell your product for? And do the unit economics on that. You know, does it make financial sense to sell your product that cheap or, um, or that expensive? Uh, who are your closest competitors and what are their prices? If you're trying to compete with them, but you're five times the price, maybe you won't be very competitive in that market. A good way to think about pricing is what's the highest price you could feasibly charge uh, because it's always easier to set a really high price and then actually bring it down later rather than start with a really low price and then try and get consumers to pay more after they've already seen it at a lower price. Um, and finally with price, just like anything, 
uh, including product, test it with consumers, see what they're willing to pay, put a concept in front of them with a price point and, and ask them whether they think that that's a good price or not. Yeah, totally. Pricing is one of those really interesting pillars where you're blending the lines between, I guess, macro psychology and seeing how people may think uh, automatically or, or with a with a fast moving uh, thought mechanism. Um, but it's also there's also a lot of detail that goes behind the scenes of making sure that works for your business. So it's a really, really cool intersection of, of those two going forward. 100%. And, you know, pricing is kind of like products, whereas when you put your price in the market, you should just leave it there for all eternity. You need to reassess that price as times change and economies change and adjust it as you go. Totally. Now, speaking of which, we need to also talk about place. And place is your distribution point, and it's going to have a massive impact on a lot of things, uh, like your unit economics, your product P&L, or your pricing. And it also impacts the level of control as to how your product is perceived. So, for example, you might decide to own the distribution through your own shop and you can control everything around it, which means you can control the perception of that brand, that whole experience. But if you decide to go through a third-party retailer shelf, you won't be able to control the perception going forward. So choosing where you would be distributed would have a massive impact on how people might pursue your brand relative to your competitors. So a couple of key principles to consider here. Um, is one, if you're a premium brand, you might want to consider using your own distribution for control, exclusivity, and brand experience in store. Um, and that's really important because it means that if you are charging a higher price for an item or your brand is a, of a higher tiered nature relative to everyone else in the category, you want to make sure that your customers know that they're getting a much better experience for the price that they're paying. The second key point is geographical availability. So do you want to be available in just one city, one country or everywhere? So you actually need to consider how you can be physically available to those markets. E-commerce will help you be available everywhere, whereas a third-party retailer could help you be available across a few specific segments across a market really, really quickly. The next key thing to consider would be your investment level, and that could be both from an emotional and a financial level. So this will be in relation to how consumers will, will feel during the entire purchasing process of your product. So for example, for high investment items, you might need to make more of a brand experience before you make a sale. So for example, if you look at luxury high-end fashion retailers, before someone might go to purchase a piece of clothing, they might be offered a glass of water. They might be offered a lot, you know, an awesome conversation. They might be shown around the store um, before they make that purchase. Whereas for something like a low investment product, you know, if you don't have that entire chain of events that need to happen in order for people to purchase your product, you probably don't need all those different levels. And an example of this could be maybe purchasing a lower involvement item like a cheap packet of chewing gum. It doesn't need to be in the fanciest retailer. It actually just needs to be in as many retailers as possible to make sure people can have that transaction really quickly. Yeah, love it. Although I would like to see at some stage, uh, you know, be given a glass of water before I buy a pack of gum. That, that would be fun. <laughs> <laughs> totally like maybe there's a really big market for luxury chewing gum <laughs> yeah exactly i'd like to see that <laughs> all right moving on to our our fourth p uh which is promotion and purposely put promotion as the fourth one here because i think fundamentally you have to get the other three right before promotion can be done well uh, because if you've got a terrible product at the wrong price that has no physical availability there's no point in trying to promote it to anybody um, but look, what is promotion? Promotion is 
what we know, what we know is the, the communications or the integrated communications or comms part of marketing. Uh, it's what a lot of people focus a lot of their time on instead of some of the more important fundamentals like product. Uh, but it is still definitely a really important part of the marketing mix. Um, so promotion is how you're going to make people mentally available or mentally aware um, of your product using things like media, PR, content, social media, direct message, et cetera, et cetera. Um, any, com any communication between the consumer and the brand comes under the, the promotion pillar. So what can you consider to build out your promotional plan? Uh, well, first of all, think about who your target market is. Because once you have identified that target market, uh, you can start to look into what are their behaviors um, from both a lifestyle, but also a media consumption behavior. So a few examples uh, would be uh, one behavior or one demographic even you could look at is someone's location. If you think that your target market is only located in certain parts of the country or the state, then that's gonna drive your promotional plan because you target your communications there. Uh, and same as with the media consumption, if you're targeting uh, someone who's you know in the Gen Z generation, uh, they, they use a lot of digital, uh, digital media and they're on things like TikTok and Snapchat and that's where you might want to spend your promotional money rather than on TV or newspapers, say. Once you've understood who the consumer is and what their behaviours are, think about what their likely consumer journey might be. These days, it's very hard to map consumer journeys. Back in the day, it used to be a lot more linear in terms of a consumer sort of channel consumption of, well, they saw my ad on TV, then they went into store and saw the packaging, and then they saw the price promotion and they bought it. These days, there are so many different medias uh, that consumers are engaged with 24 seven, um, that it will be more like a maze rather than a linear journey. But if you map that out of all the different ways people might come across your product, you can start to then tailor messaging uh, and different communications at those different points. So one in the awareness part of the comms funnel, say, might be uh, search. Someone might be interested in work, solving a problem that they have and they might Google search it. So how do you make sure that you pop up there? Another thing to consider within that consumer journey is what are the moments in someone's day, year or life that will be a relevant moment that you can present comms to? So uh, where is that crucial pain point that the consumer has that will be the perfect time for you to send them a message? So once you've got your media planned, you also need to work on the actual message or the creative because there's the media side and then there's always the message side. Um, so make sure you're working on building relevant messages in those moments. And Going on from that, make sure that it's consistent uh, and preferably has an emotional impact rather than a rational impact um, because we know that emotional comms tend to have uh, a deeper response from a consumer and help them build those uh, memory structures in their brain. Yeah, totally. One, one of the best analogies I got from a mentor when I was first starting out in my career when it came to promotion was that, you know, being when it comes to doing promotion, you have to look at it as an investment banker, uh, both in terms of your creative, but also the money you spend. So in terms of how you actually go about allocating your creative messaging, it you know, has a really strong ROI. But also when you are investing that into promotion and media channels to make sure you're getting the best bank for your buck coming back going forward as well. That's such a good point. Like messaging and, and creative as well is, you know, a lot of people think it's just like this art form that, that can't really be explained, but there are a lot of methodologies you can use to make sure that you are putting the right message in the right place for the right person. Um, so having that, that banker approach or that um, scientific approach um, as a basis is really, 
really important. Yeah, it's also um, really fun to sometimes imagine Gordon Gecko uh, filling out a media brief <laughs> and briefing a, bit, briefing a whole bunch of creatives. Um, I don't know if it would be the most inspiring brief, but um, it would definitely be quite funny to see him walking along the, uh, along the beach with an old-timey Motorola phone uh, talking about how they're going to emotionally capture the market. Alrighty then. Well, Mark, this was a really great sort of basics, uh, basic session on, on the four P's. I think it's always good as marketers to go back to the four P's and make sure that we're really understanding them deeply and, and applying all of them when we're thinking about our brands rather than just focusing on one like promotion or just product. Um, so I've definitely found this really, really useful to go back, back on. I hope you have too. Yeah, totally. It's always good to go and revisit the principles, whether it's your first year of marketing or your 15th year to being a marketer. Um, it's so important to revisit these principles. So we hope you guys um, at home, wherever you are listening to us, have also taken a lot out of this. And if you've enjoyed the episode, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you really enjoyed the episode, leave us a five-star rating and review so we can share our learning journey with more people. Fantastic. Thank you.